across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The war goes on, ladies and gentlemen. Are we a nation of sheep or are we a nation of individualists who balk at the very notion of doing what we are told and allowing our government in the form of fluorescent jacketed fools to herd us into supplication? I can tell you which group I'll be joining and it won't be the one that waits for an instruction on how to walk down the road in the right manner, putting left foot before right and then right foot before left. Yesterday we told you how Covid marshals would be patrolling our streets looking for people to order about, how groups of more than six would be dispersed and possibly fined for having the temerity to enjoy themselves in public. Well guess what, now the cabinet is apparently at war over what we should be doing. Health Secretary Matt Hancock appears to have morphed into Typhoid Mary with his fear-mongering and over-cautious rule of six. We need to know what you're seeing out there. Have you spotted any marshals? I know some of you have. Have you spotted any busybodies? Has anyone told you where to stand and what to do this morning? If so, we want to hear from you. 0344-499-1000. We'll be talking to Christopher Snowden from the Institute for Economic Affairs. And I'm pretty sure I know what he's going to be saying. I'm happy to report the Borough Market last night was absolutely buzzing with people out and about eating, drinking and making merry. It was a joy to behold. Let's make this weekend the best one yet for the economy. 0344-499-1000. Coming up later on, we've got some great trade news from Japan as a new deal has been struck for trade. We are also heading over to Portugal where thousands Thousands of British tourists are now rushing to get home to avoid the quarantine, which was imposed late yesterday afternoon. And we are joined by Dr. Rakiba San, who has just published a major study into the Black Lives Matter movement and the phenomenon that seems to have taken hold in this country, although the grip appears to be slightly loosening, it would seem to me. And because it's Friday, we've got another sparkling edition of the Perry Awards with Martin Balagon. Plus, we've got homeschooling today on Pangaea, when the world was a much simpler place. And it was all in one place then as well. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, it's been an interesting week, hasn't it? Because it started off really with people talking about trying to get people back to work. Schools were opening up again. People were sending their kids to school for the first time since March. People were finding themselves sitting at home, um, twiddling their thumbs, wondering what to do. The children had gone. The children had gone back to school. Suddenly having to get back into the routine of taking them to school, picking them up again in the afternoon. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And we thought that would lead to more people going back to work. Suddenly then the whammy comes yesterday, uh, just before yesterday, day before yesterday, where Boris Johnson suddenly announces that we're going to go down to this six person rule uh, known as the rule of six, in which apparently you're not allowed to meet anybody uh, in groups of more than six. Unless, of course, you're a member of Extinction Rebellion uh, or Black Lives Matter or any other uh, nefarious uh, protesting group, because that's okay. And you can also play sport and you can also do lots of other things. So plenty of reasons not to really do the rule of six whatsoever. But what we were saying yesterday is if they start sending out these COVID marshals that they're talking about, who are going to tell us which way to walk down the street, tell us where to stand, tell us where to sit, tell us when to speak, tell us what to say. I'm afraid that is not the Britain that I would like to live in. Let's talk to Christopher Snowden, uh, who is the head of lifestyle economics at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Uh, I'm pretty sure he'll have some interesting things to say about the way this guy government is currently running uh, the COVID pandemic. Christopher, very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning, Mike. Thanks very much for joining us. Now, I'm assuming, and I shouldn't assume because that's always the wrong thing to do, but I'm assuming uh, that like me, you'll be slightly alarmed at the idea that we are now going to be sort of herded about by a load of people wearing high-vis jackets telling us what we should be doing and what we shouldn't be doing. Yes, things have really accelerated again this week, haven't they? They have. After things started to look a bit, little bit better. Um, I, I can't work out what um, Matt Hancock and Boris Johnson are thinking. Matt Hancock seems to take a certain relish mm. in, in bossing people around. Um, there seems to be a bit of a power trip going on. I think there are two issues here. One is, if you assume that further restrictions are needed, is this Rule of Six the, the appropriate one? I think it's absolutely not. I think it's a very, very poor way of doing it. It effectively stops a family of four from meeting up with another family. Yeah. Anywhere. Inside, outside, in the park, in the back garden, anywhere. And for that reason, it will be widely ignored. It will be flouted by people. It's 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 clearly over the top, arbitrary and unrealistic. Even if they'd excluded children, it yeah. would have made a bit more sense. They're allowing children to go to school with hundreds of other children, but you can't meet them with um, somebody else's family. Mm. So I think it's the wrong tool for the job, but I also think the job is wrong. 
it's still not at all clear to me what the government is trying to achieve. I think most people in March were on board with the idea that stopping the NHS being un- overwhelmed was a reasonable justification for a massive loss of liberty. Yes. The case numbers now are around about 2 or 3% of what they were in March. We have so much further to go before we get anywhere near that kind of crisis level. We also know from Sweden now that actually it's very unlikely that the NHS will be overwhelmed. And with all the social distancing that's come in, with the face masks, the contact tracing, um, we must be better prepared for, for a second wave if it comes. Yeah, I mean, and that's if it comes, because there's also no indication from my perspective, and certainly from plenty of medical experts that I speak to, that there's ever going to be a second wave. And what we know from the figures that were out yesterday, 41% now of the new infections are people between the ages of 21 and 29. So therefore, they are people who are unlikely to be adversely affected in a massive way. We also know that people under the age of 44 who have died number less than 600 out of the numbers of tens of thousands of people that have died. So, you know, I think they've got the risk um, assessments wrong here because they're looking at these infections as if they are the same as the ones that were happening in March and April, when they're clearly not. Yes, and of course, one of the reasons that the first wave was so bad is that the government put a whole lot of people out of NHS hospitals into nursing homes when Mm. they had COVID-19. Hopefully the government will not do that again, although who knows. Mm. Um. I, when Matt Hancock talks about young people killing their grandmothers, you know, I think th- this is really goes too far. I think we need to fundamentally look again at the way we're doing this. If, you know, old people, elderly people, vulnerable people, people with serious underlying health conditions are really concerned about catching COVID, then they should stay inside. You know, if you want a second lockdown, you lock yourself down. Yeah. Don't force everybody else to lock down. This really is what we should have done from day one. We should have insulated, isolated the vulnerable and let the rest of society yes. go about that because people under the age of 65 that are healthy have a negligible risk of dying from this we should have done this from day one but if this is now going to go on for months and months and months perhaps we have another shot but we need to say if you're concerned about this if you're fearing for your life by all means, stay at home, but don't expect the rest of the society to do the same. No, clearly they've got that part of it wrong, haven't they? Because the messaging was very mixed. And looking at some of the stories today and the coverage uh, of what's going on inside of Downing Street, it's very clear that the cabinet is split. Uh, the Daily Mail describes war uh, in the cabinet between Matt Hancock, who seems to have turned into, as you say, this kind of very nanny state type individual um, who wants to keep everybody safe by basically telling them to do nothing. And everybody else, including Boris Johnson, who's meant to be a libertarian. I mean, I'm going to have to start uh, changing my description of Boris Johnson pretty soon, I think, because he's about as libertarian uh, as, as old Jeremy Corbyn at this point. Well, Boris Johnson's got this reputation for being a libertarian, but can anyone actually name anything he's ever done that is libertarian? <laughs> I can't think of a single thing. No. Um, no, I mean, I, I gather the cabinet have been split on this rule of six nonsense in particular, but only insofar as some of them think it should be a rule of eight. Yes. You know. So, yeah, that would make it slightly better, I guess. But, I mean, it, all of it at, the, at this stage seems to me a uh, a massive overreaction. Mm. We need to learn the lessons from Sweden. You know, I keep banging on about this because, you know, in a gigantic international experiment, Sweden effectively offered to be the control group. They didn't do nothing, mm. but they, they limited gatherings to 50 rather than 60. Yes. People. They've since increased that recently to 500 because they're doing so well. Right. Deaths has fallen virtually to zero, been very, very low for the last couple of months. The public health experts there but don't think there will be a second wave. But even if there is, they can look to the winter with a great deal more confidence than the rest of Europe yes. can. And uh, I know, cases are rising. And I, and I know they didn't get everything right in Sweden. And I often say it's difficult to compare the two countries simply because Sweden doesn't have a very big population. But you're right that they did get it much more right in terms of the economy than we did. Also, I was listening to somebody talking from Iceland yesterday. And Iceland have now increased the numbers of people, I think, from 100 to 200 that can meet. And uh, the guy that well, was being interviewed on the radio was absolutely incredulous that we had somehow come up with this number six. He's going, well, how can you meet anybody if you're only allowed to meet six people? It's just ridiculous, you know. And it seems to me that we are the kind of um, almost like the backward son uh, of the family in Europe where we are kind of saying, oh, but, you know, it's a terrible situation. You know, we're all in terrible danger. Well, you know, as I keep saying, we've had this now for six months. We're going to have it for at least another six months. Can we try and be a bit grown up about it instead of running away and hiding in a cave? Well, that's it. I mean, there isn't a plan. I think there was a plan at one point in, in February and March, 
And then people like Piers Morgan got very hysterical about mm. it and the government went completely the opposite direction. And instead of taking a Swedish approach, we essentially took a Chinese approach. Yeah. And we are now resorting for the most draconian option on 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 every occasion. Mm. And so we are we seem to be copying Belgium, which basically brought in a very strict lockdown rather than um, following what's been done in places right. like Sweden. We, we, we are the opposite of libertarian. Boris Johnson is the opposite of libertarian on, on this issue. And it can't go on. It can't go because there, there, there is no end in sight, really. You know, hoping for no. a vaccine isn't really a strategy. It's no. just an aspiration. And we, we were told from day one that having a lockdown would be no solution. It would just push the problem over into winter when the NHS is under more stress anyway. So what we're going to do? We're going to lock down in winter, and we're going to lock down in spring. I mean, this is not a, a workable, viable strategy. It's really not. And also, the ludicrous nature of the way that we do things in this country means that there's all sorts of reasons why the quarantines that we're doing don't work. There's all sorts of reasons why uh, the exemptions to wearing masks uh, mean that loads of people don't bother wearing them. It means that you know there is no actual strategy that we're doing anyway. You know, I mean, you can come into this country if you're Michelle Barnier, and you don't have to quarantine, despite the fact that you're coming from one of the highest rated covid countries in europe you know you can come in from this uh, uh, from the european continent uh, without having to quarantine yourself from say france or from spain if you happen to work for an airline or if you happen to be a doctor now to me that's not a quarantine so what's the point of having it there isn't really a point of having it at this stage the time to have quarantine and travel bans was january yeah february and we should have had them with northern italy and, and china it's easy to say that in hindsight perhaps but that was the only time it really would have made it. But to be fair, Christopher, you I mean, to be fair, I was asking that question back then, and so were you probably, and people were telling me, uh, including doctors, oh, well, there's no point in quarantining people. It doesn't really catch that much of the disease. It only gets about 6 or 10% of the people coming through airports. Well, hang on. They're coming from Wuhan. They're coming from northern Italy. They're coming from China, uh, and they're coming from Iran, all of which were massively high in numbers, um, and we did nothing about it. Yeah, because, partly because the World Health Organization was fiercely against travel yeah, bans. Right. Uh, still, still is, in fact, as far as I know. But the only reason, really, you bring in a travel ban is if you're trying to suppress the virus. This is, you know, the, the New Zealand approach, I guess. Mm. Um, and we shouldn't be trying to suppress the virus. It's not clear to me even now whether we actually are trying to eradicate it completely. We're just trying to keep it at a relatively low level. If which, in which case, what is the appropriate level? Right. If three thousand is too many cases a day. What about two and a half thousand? What about one thousand? You know, so we're we're using a sort of hodgepodge of suppression and mitigation policies, none of which really fit together. The message doesn't fit together. The eat how eat how. Uh, help out combined with don't meet more than six people right. we're going to close the pubs at 10 p.m none of this is coherent no and it's quite clear to me that the government is flailing around but there's no question as well christopher i don't know what it's like where you are uh, but certainly in london last night certain parts of london are deserted because not very much of it is open but the parts that are busy like around london bridge borough market it was absolutely rammed last night to the point where people were queuing up to get into pubs now i'm very encouraged by that because what it tells me is that an awful lot of people have seen and heard what the government's got to say and are basically just going to ignore it well especially this weekend yeah i mean this weekend is going to be a big party weekend isn't it right and this is perhaps football another... season starts uh-huh. It can't go to the grounds, of course. But yeah, I mean, people know that there is a door about to close in their face. Mm. So I would expect this weekend to be extremely busy. And perhaps this is another fail failure of, of leadership. If you're going to do these things, do them immediately rather than uh, let people know about it. It's yeah. rather like when the Italians tried to lock down northern Italy, but give people a 24-hour hours notice. Right. And, leave them to and everybody, the and everybody and go jumped. South yeah. lock down the whole country. Well, exactly, yeah. But that is the, the strange part of all of this, isn't it? I mean, you wonder what they can do next, and you do worry, and I can't believe they would take it any further, but when you start talking about hiring COVID marshals to st stagger about the streets in high-visibility vests, telling people what to do, where to do it, when to do it, you know, that starts to, uh, to go down a slippery slope for me. Yeah, it's notable that the government is taking more of an explicitly authoritarian line now with the, the COVID marshals, even though I gather they're actually not going to have any police powers. Mm. Uh, the fact that the government is, is really emphasising enforcement in a way that it didn't before. Yeah. Uh, and it didn't really need to before because, you know, governments govern with consent. And when it came to the lockdown, for good or ill, it was very popular with people. People understood the reasons for it. Yeah. And uh, it didn't really need that much enforcement. I think things are now changing. My sense is that very large numbers of people have really had enough of this now and yeah. frankly would rather take their chances with the virus and put up with months and months more of this. Young people in particular quite understandably feel that they've had a golden summer robbed from them. 
Uh, they know that there is virtually zero risk from the virus itself. And I don't blame them for going raving, frankly. No, exactly right. And and they haven't really got any choice. I mean, I've got friends in the business who run nightclubs and they're saying, well, look, if you open the nightclubs, they won't be going to illegal raves. They'll be able to come to regulated events, which actually mean something uh, that they can that they can do uh, with a reasonable amount of, of legality. So, you know, it seems to me that you can't stop people from enjoying themselves. And the more you try and stop them, the more they're determined to do it. Yeah, you can't complain about people going to illegal raves. There aren't any legal raves. Right. You, know, you, exactly. you want to go out and have a good time. You've got no choice but to break the law. Yeah. And I feel a lot of people actually over the course of the next few months are going to think exactly that, that they have no choice but to break the law. Right. That, you know, there is actually nothing wrong with two families meeting up for a Sunday roast and people are going to carry on doing it. I mean, exactly. I mean, once, and, once, once you are being told that you are somehow breaking the law by having some roast beef and Yorkshire pudding uh, with more than six people, you suddenly go, well, actually, that's a law I'm willing to break and I'm not a criminal, so, you know, sue me. Exactly. Yeah, bad laws bring old laws into yeah. disrepute. Yeah, they really do. So, I mean, is there any hope that between now and, say, the next month that, that somebody somewhere in Downing Street will see the light? Because you'd like to think that there's some people in there with some, with some decent brains. I keep being told by people in the know that there's a lot of very clever people in Downing Street. Well, I wish they'd come out and do something. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's, it swings around us, doesn't it? You know, we, we had a very draconian lockdown, followed by Rishi Sunak in particular saying, oh, my God, look at the state of the economy. We need to do something about it. And then it went from locking people up to paying them, literally paying them to go out and have a yeah. meal. So perhaps if the economy takes a further slide, it hasn't gone much further to go, if it takes a further slide, perhaps Rishi or somebody will come in and say, look, we can't carry on like this. The Swedish government made a surplus last month. Can you yeah. believe that? Right. A surplus. We are at debt to GDP levels we haven't seen since the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. Yeah. Well, we've got travel. We've got traffic levels now around London, apparently, which are as high as they were a year ago. Um, now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing for the economy, because what it does mean is that nobody's using the train and everybody's driving yep. around, which means there's an awful lot of congestion that added to all the various other problems that London has got in terms of congestion. Don't get me started. But, you know, here we have an opportunity, uh, it would seem to me, um, to start getting people back to work, kids back to school. You know, let's push that agenda rather than the kind of let's all be frightened and go running back into the house again. Yeah, and I guess the Rule 6 is a government's kind of um, fairly half-baked way of trying to control the virus without doing too much damage to the economy. Yeah. Clearly, the Rule 6, as daft as it is, is nowhere near as damaging as closing the schools again or closing the hospitality right. industry. It will have a knock-on effect because people can't go out in, in groups of more than six. But in terms of the... But I see, I think they will, though. I think they will, honestly, because, I mean, for example, I said, I told this story. I was at lunch the other day with some friends of mine. We so, It so happened there were seven of us. It wasn't, it wasn't designed that way. But we had two tables in a restaurant because they didn't have one for six uh, or seven people. We had one for four and one for three. We'll still be able to do that next week. Uh, yeah, I mean, as, as I say, I think a lot of people will flout it anyway. So, yeah, it, it, it's a less economically damaging way of going about it. It's uh, much more... Uh, an issue of, of freedom, you know, uh, than it is the the economy. The economy is screwed either way, frankly. Mm. Um, it's all, um, you know, it's all rounding error stuff, really. A lot of this, um, yeah. The the issue is about um, our, our lifestyles, our freedoms, and our, our our way of life going forward. Yeah, and I think we have to defend those absolutely uh, to the hilt. Christopher, thank you very much indeed. Christopher Snowden, there, head of lifestyle economics at the Institute of Economic Affairs, uh, talking an awful lot of sense. I get the sense. Uh, honestly, that the bulk of the population of this country is not going to adhere to this rule of six. Um, you're going to get around it. You're not necessarily going to deliberately go out and break the law, but you're also not going to deliberately put yourself in uh, to some kind of ridiculous self-imposed quarantine where you can only meet a few people and not more people than a few people if you so wish. And after what I saw last night here in London, I'm pretty encouraged, actually, that more people than not are going to be out there spending money, having a good time, enjoying themselves, because that, in the end, is what is going to get us out of this. I've been saying this all along. I've been saying it for weeks. I've been saying it for months probably now. You know, the economy needs to be serviced by people with money who can afford to spend it. It's that simple. And if you can't afford to spend it, nobody's making you, but you do have a duty of care towards the general good, I think. Mid-morning. 
with Mike Graham. Talk Radio, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Great news today, by the way, and we do like to have good news occasionally here on this show uh, because we don't always get an awful lot of it. We're going to talk now to Marcus Fish, Conservative MP for Yeovil, Deputy President of the Board of Trade as well, uh, recently appointed. The UK and Japan have basically done an historic free trade deal, uh, which is being held as one of the best trade deals ever done. So for all you people who thought it couldn't be done, uh, welcome to the real world. Marcus, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. This is great news, isn't it? It sort of shows that uh, the trade talks that we have been getting involved in around the world are starting to bear some fruit. Yeah, it it is really good news. This this is the third biggest uh, 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 trade trade opportunity in the world, and and um, and we've actually done it, and we've uh, gone gone beyond uh, what the EU was able to negotiate with um, Japan. So it improves the trading position for our businesses all around the country, and that that's really excellent. There there are brilliant things in it. Um, there's uh, more opportunity to export uh, beef and cheese, and uh, it obviously gives um, certainty on on ta- tariffs. Not not having tariffs in, in our car parts, uh, which is important yeah. to our car industry. So yeah, there's lots of really good stuff in there. And there's plenty of investment coming back into us from Japan as well, isn't there? Because people have always I've always been slightly dubious of those people who said, well, the thing is, you can't possibly get the same deal as the European Union. In fact, you can not only get the deal, but you can actually do the deal in a much more simple way because you don't have to get agreement from 27 other uh, nations. That's exactly right. Um, and I think it, re- it really bodes well for our uh, future as a global trading nation. Um, yeah, no, it is really good. Uh, it, it is good to see that all the work, I, I know they've been working really hard on this within the department for a, a good 18 months now so it is great great to see it starting to, to to come to fruition and and do you think this will be a sort of catalyst for for lots of other deals now as well because other countries who may be already talking to us anyway uh, will see that this is we've got it over the line and now let's 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 get our own one yes absolutely there's obviously been a lot of work done to roll over all of the uh, deals that we had by virtue of the eu uh, before that, that that's a process that is ongoing. There are one or two still outstanding, like Mexico, but um, hope hopefully and also Canada, and this I hope will get them over the line. They are two countries that are part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, mm. which is a wider grouping of countries around the Pacific Rim and in Asia, which we also opened talks with as a block um, earlier this uh, week. So that. That is really that's a really important move for us um, because that is where much of the future growth of the world is going to be coming from. Mm. Um, And uh, so that is really excellent news. Japan and Mexico and Canada are all are all part of that. Um, And yeah, this this is where the growth is. This is how we uh, access it. Right. Because an awful lot of the uh, EU's trade deals seem to take an age, literally to be done. I mean, well, I think they've been talking to Canada for something like 20 years uh, without actually getting anything done. So it's very encouraging, I think. And people um, outside of the uh, the Brexit sort of echo chamber, I would have thought will be very encouraged by this. Yeah, no, it, it is good news for everybody, whatever they uh, thought about Brexit. This absolutely shows that it is um, that it is possible. And in fact, not 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 just possible, it's it's a thing the UK can can be really good at. Mm. That, that of course is one of the points uh, of those who did want to leave the EU uh, was was to be able to do this. So it is great to see it starting to come to fruition. Sure. We obviously want to deal with the EU and we want to deal with the US and and, and lots of other people mm. too. And I'm um, seeing that one of the things that's been uh, discussed and, and agreed upon is improved mobility for business people because one of the, the things that the economy really badly needs right now is the stimulus of businesses coming into the country, bringing their employees into the country to work for periods of time and you know that tourism then begets more tourism if you like and, and, and I mean it's something that we could really do with right now. That's absolutely right. Yeah, there are provisions in the agreement uh, for it to be easier uh, for businesses to um, to uh, send send their employees back and forth. Mm. Um, that is really good news. There there are also things about uh, look, looking at financial services and opening that up. Uh, man, many people won't necessarily know, but actually the 
Japanese financial markets are, are one of the biggest opportunities out there in the world. Um, and and it, it really is good for our financial industries to uh, be able to have more open access than we have at the moment and an ongoing dialogue as to how to make it even more open in the future. Yes, fantastic. Well, great stuff. Congratulations to everybody involved in it, Marcus. Thank you very much indeed. Marcus Fish, Conservative MP for Yeovil and Deputy President of the Board of Trade. Liz Truss uh, sent out a tweet a little bit earlier on uh, saying, proud to have agreed an historic trade deal uh, with the Japanese foreign minister. This is a great deal for Britain going beyond EU, Japan in key areas like digital and data, financial services and food and drink. A British-shaped deal that delivers for the whole country. So I think we should be proud of that. Uh, we should be celebrating it. Uh, it's a great idea to go out tonight to a Japanese restaurant uh, and give them some money uh, for some very nice uh, Japanese food. That's what I'm uh, going to think about doing if I can. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Now, time to welcome along Dr. Rakib Hassan, a man who does an awful lot of good work uh, out there at the Henry Jackson Society, uh, pinpointing the things that this society is very good at and occasionally... Uh, pricking the conscience of those people who think that they know what they're talking about and who think that simply by saying the words diversity that that changes the whole game and it doesn't always do that dr rakeba very good morning to you welcome morning mike how are you yeah very well indeed good to see you uh tell us about this report that you've that you've edited because it looks very thorough it looks like it's um um gained an awful lot of uh sort of information from all sorts of sources so tell us first of all what made you uh, come up with the idea for it well, Mike, as you know, since the police homicide of George Floyd in the U.S. state of Minnesota, uh, we've seen a wave of demonstrations, not just across America, but we've also witnessed that in the U.K. So I think with the anthology drawing on a number of voices across academia, um, in, in uh, people who are considered to be political activists mm. who are pushing back on the more socially divisive narratives uh, which are coming out through the Black Lives Matter UK movement, uh, the Henry Jackson Society has published uh, an anthology which essentially looks at the divisive nature of those narratives, the ideological messaging, and also how do we, how do we push back against this? The reality of the matter is this hard-left identitarian ideology, I, I feel, is quite disruptive for community relations. I think that it could have a potentially dis- destabilising effect on... Britain's multiracial democracy. So it's a matter of where do we go from here? How do we push back on this? And when we're talking about particular communities, how can we facilitate social progress and economic empowerment within those communities? Because right. I think it's key to move the debate forward. Yes, I think so. Because when the original kind of um, uh, aftermath, the first the first aftermath, I guess, uh, after the murder of George Floyd by the police in, in Minnesota, um, there was a kind of knee-jerk reaction, it seemed to me. Um, and I think a lot of very well-meaning people got caught up in what can only be described as a sort of radical um, anarchistic movement. Um, which they thought represented change for the good. But a lot of people then realised later, maybe just didn't represent change for, for, for the good. It just represented change for change's sake. Well, I think that much of the problem with the Black Lives Matter UK movement is that many people jumped on the bandwagon, didn't they? Mm. Including, the, including the Premier League. I always found it very interesting that a capitalist enterprise such as the Premier League would express support with a, with a movement which has clearly expressed its anti-capitalist yes. sentiment. Is looking to dismantle the and also isn't it? System. But also, isn't it interesting, Rakib, that they've now moved away from that today? Well, I think no room for racism is a far more inclusive message, isn't yeah, it? Of course. I think, irrespective of who's suffering the racism, it has no place in British football. Right. I think that's a far more inclusive message. I think ultimately, when it comes to challenging forms of racism, bigotry, and discrimination, you need to build coalitions, Mike. Mm. I think that's the truth. You need to build support across different ethnic, racial and religious groups living in the UK. It's ultimately about prioritising national inclusivity over group specific interests. Yes, yes, because in the end, if you only do group specific interests uh, as a general policy, then all you're doing really is continuing discrimination um, in a different form. Well, Mike, I've discussed this before. So when people talk about positive discrimination, for example, for uh, certain roles in the labour market, there's no such thing as positive discrimination. Mm. Discrimination is negative. Stop. And, you know, when we're looking more broadly at um, debates surrounding race, for example, the introduction of quotas 
for uh, uh, racial quotas for boardrooms. I think things like that, they'd almost undermine the authority of successful, high-achieving non-white people living in the UK. It'll, it'll create social resentment. People may be thinking that, oh, you're only there in that position because you're just there to fill the numbers. So I think we really need to be careful here. I think the emphasis should be on equality of opportunity, not equality of outcomes. Yes. And I think when you're looking at the anthology, it's talking about how do we create a more meritocratic society, a merit-based allocation of rewards and opportunities. Because I think all too often when it comes to uh, hard left identitarian ideology, I don't actually think the emphasis is on equality. I think the emphasis is on preferential treatment. And I think that in itself is unhelpful for modern day Britain. Yes. And what did you make of the media's kind of reaction to it all? Because it seemed to me that the media were a little bit too quick to kind of immediately rush to support Black Lives Matter without really checking out what they were on about, what they were on about. Well, I think I think not just the media. I think certain celebrities as well. Yeah, I think they're all too willing to jump on the bandwagon. They thought this was the new, uh, trendy, fashionable sort of movement to get on board. Mm. Uh, to get on board with and uh, I feel that more generally people ought to do their research do a bit of digging in terms of what the core objectives of particular movements it's very clear on the Black Lives Matter UK funding page that it's committed to defunding the police with Mm. a view to abolishing the police now for, for me Mike I think that would be destructive for a number of predominantly black inner city neighborhoods now of course we can talk about more resources into mental health intervention uh youth services uh groups which work and try to uh keep uh, keep young people on the straight and narrow but these are not direct substitutes for having a functioning local police force no and also the police might not be doing the greatest job in the world but they are still the line between life and death for an awful lot of people in certain situations and the one thing i can say having lived and worked in america for many years is that the police in this country are very very far from the way the police operate in the US. And also this whole society of ours is very different. The police in America go out every day knowing that they could be shot dead by some perp as they call them. You know, in this country that's not really so much the case for the police. Well, Mike, the reality of the matter is that the American cultural environment is very different to the British cultural environment. Yeah. Some of the reasons you've discussed. And I, I feel for me, one of the biggest problems is that uh, hard left activists based in the UK, they're developing their connections with their ideological counterparts in the US. Mm. They're looking to share on their grievances, those narratives um uh which touch upon law enforcement and i think what you see there then you have the bizarre you have the bizarre uh, incident where you have hard left british activists uh, chanting don't shoot mm. at british police officers yeah. and i think that that's where you see it is that this bizarre importation of cultural politics from the us and when it's applied in the british context it sounds ridiculous, mm. Mike. That's uh, the truth. And also, do you also not think, Rakib, that the uh, the visions that we've been seeing of the fires and the, and the, and the torching of, of many major American cities has also had an effect on people who have gone, well, maybe these are not the sort of people we should actually be supporting because these are anarchists, no question. Uh, they're damaging the infrastructure of the United States of America and we shouldn't really have any part of that. Mike, the reality of the matter is that across America, there's been black owned businesses which have been destroyed um, during this uh, period of civil unrest. I think more broadly, people who were initially supportive of the movement have seen that how how, the the destructive effects, the complete disrespect for the rule of law, uh, private property. And the reality of the matter is, Mike, the the support will very much dwindle in working class communities, whether that might be in Britain, whether that be in the United States. Mm. The one thing about those, these particular communities, they take great deal of pride in their private possessions. Wherever wherever they have, they work very hard to have those things yeah. and they have respect for the rule of law and they also, as, as I was saying they, they rely on a functioning police force to keep their neighbourhoods safe mm. and to reduce levels of crime and delinquency so well, ultimately the, the, these movements are, the, I think they are hugely problematic and I think a growing number of people are realising yeah. that I mean we did an interview with a guy called Gary McFarlane who's one of the sort of uh, founding members of Black Lives Matter um, and I asked him 
at what point do you stop the marching and at what point do you say you've achieved what it is that you want to achieve and he couldn't answer the question because he didn't really have an aim there was really no aim and when i said to him what about this defunding of the police he basically said well of course uh, we won't need to worry about the drug gangs if there are no police because what will happen then is that major companies will start up and distribute the illegal drugs legally and so i'm like so you're you're an anarchist who's against capitalism but you want big companies to actually control the drug trade yes he said and it was all but the, the message was very mixed up well, Mike, I've said it many times before, I think hard left movements in the UK, they often come across as directionless. Mm. They're not very goal oriented. And quite honest, they, did, they, they, they don't keep very focused on the bread and butter at all. Now, I think if you're talking about, you know, matters of race in the UK affecting more broadly the British black population, I'd talk about things like labour market discrimination. Mm. Uh, I would also talk about how can we find ways to develop bonds of trust and respect between um, especially British-born British born black people and their public institutions, yeah. their democratic institutions. Um, I think it's very interesting that, that there's a number of issues surrounding maternity support for British black mothers as well. These are bread and butter issues, Mike, but all too often, uh, it's very interesting that Black Lives Matter UK on its official um, Twitter, off its Twitter account, it, it, it tweet. It once tweeted an entire thread on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Yes, I remember that. And I'm not sure how many uh, b b black lives that's affecting in the UK, Mike. Right. Truth be told, so I think all too often they come across as d distracted and directionless, and I think that th that's a problem. Yes, and I don't know whether you saw a story last weekend at which it was suggested that um, the the people who organise Black Lives Matter in the UK are thinking of actually forming themselves into a proper bona fide political party, which I think would be the end of them because all they would then become uh, would be a sort of curiosity, small party, lost the deposit in, in almost every place they'd go. Mm. I don't, I think that, you know, I mean, I'd welcome it, to be honest, because I'm all about democracy. And if you want to try and do something to change the world, then get yourself elected to parliament and start making laws to do that. But I don't think they would find that they'd have any kind of meaningful um, voting backing by the people of this country. Well, I, I think that if there was an organisation that is so focused on prioritising group-specific interests, I, th I think they would fail mm. at, the ballot back, at the ballot box. Yeah. That's me being completely honest. Um, I agree. I think a diversity of opinion is welcome uh, in, a in a liberal democracy such as ours. Mm. The problem I find is that all too often people who are supportive of the BLM movement, they're not really interested in diversity of opinion. They're, not, they're certainly not interested in hearing more conservative-leaning opinions within... British black communities right. and all too often when people express those kind of views or they they talk about for example the level of family breakdown within British black communities how that's stalling social progress how that that's problematic in terms of cultivating a cultural responsibility within particular communities yeah they can expect all sorts of racially motivated insults whether that's Uncle Tom um, race traitor is a, is, a, is a commonly used one as well so Yes, diversity of opinion is fine, but equally, let's not be a hypocrite about it either. If mm. people are expressing a perfectly legitimate view, you can robustly disagree with that view. But I think when you start bringing in racially motivated insults, I think that that has no place in our democratic society. No, quite. And as you've often said, Rakeem, you know, it's simply too um, easy to categorise all black lives as being the same. You know, you've been very good on this in terms of making out that there are different communities uh, of uh, of black and ethnic minority individuals in this country and they don't all think as one you know they're not monolithic oh. in their beliefs about politics in their beliefs about society in their beliefs about socialism you know nothing really oh mike i i, I couldn't agree more and i think that's a problem because what black lives matter uk from what i've seen in my view they're looking to cultivate a shared black resistance mm. <clears throat> so it's not in their interest to identify those variations within the broader British black population. As we've discussed before, when compared to people of black Caribbean origin, uh, black Af pu pupils of black African origin, they're performing much better at school. Uh, more broadly, they're more satisfied with the way British, the British democratic system works. They're more trusting of democratic institutions. <clears throat> and they're also more likely to have trust in their local police force. Mm. So there's very clear differences between people of black Caribbean origin people of black african origin however 
black hard left movements they're ultimately interested in creating a shared black resistance ultimately framing the uk on a white versus bame basis so they're not interested and they'll try their best to mask over those very important differences between british black communities mm. and would it be your kind of conclusion after this um, report which i'm going to ask you about where we can get it from in a minute would it be your conclusion that the sort of the mainstream if you like people who've supported black lives matter through the summer the kind of people that would go on marches with them have kind of left them behind now and just left them to it well i i think that enthusiasm in terms of supporting the movement has dampened somewhat uh, I think, unfortunately, uh, Sakir Starmer, he got himself in a right tangle. Um, he, he, he really did. Uh, and as I say, it's always important when there's emerging movements, you, you approach them with caution, or at least you do some sort of research in terms of what their core aims and objectives are yeah. before you provide them with your personal support. Uh, I, th I just think going into the future, though, while we can criticise the BLM movement, I think it's also important to provide, we need to provide solutions and we need to provide compelling narratives which neutralise the threat of hard left ideology in the UK. Yes, I think a very good place uh, to end it there. Dr. Rakib Hassan, uh, where can people get hold of this report if they want to get it? Uh, they can get off the Henry Jackson Society website. Uh, they can also visit my Twitter uh, account as well. I've been publicising the report a great deal and I'll be pushing out again shortly on Twitter. Great stuff. We'll be retweeting that as well. Dr. Rakib Hassan from the Henry Jackson Society. Thank you very much indeed. Interesting conversations always uh, on this show about all the things that you care about and some of the things you didn't even know about. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We are still in the midst of trying to track down Jenny Barsby. Uh, she's evading us at the moment, but we will try and get her on because uh, we need to know her story. She's been having to uh, make a, a, a cut short the trip uh, that she had made to Portugal because she needs to be back before 4am tomorrow morning in order to avoid the old quarantine. So she'll be in here reading the news on Monday. That's the whole point. But right now, though, uh, we are now going to talk about Pangea. 
because Pangaea, you may know or you may not know, uh, is the name given uh, to the Earth before it all kind of broke up into the various continents in which it now finds itself, right? We're going to talk to Dr. Uh, Anjana Katwa, uh, who's an Earth scientist and presenter on TV. Uh, Dr. Anjana, very good uh, afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Not at all. I've always been quite fascinated by this whole idea of the Earth as one kind of landmass. Um, so tell us, first of all, you know, what we know about that and when it was that that was the case. Well... Basically, what's happened is that the Earth has formed over four and a half billion years. And at that time, it was a seething mass of, you know, kind of magma, molten rock. And over time, there was a crust that cooled on the surface of this molten mm. rock. And that formed the crustal plates that we that we can that we know today. OK, so as far as the water, I'm, I'm looking at sort of, you know, um, uh, graphic descriptions here of what it looked like. So there was already seawater, right? Uh, it just was uh, sort of gathered around one large mass rather than split up into various different continents. That's right. And what's remarkable is that the water that, that we see on our planet today actually all originated from meteorites that were hitting our baby Earth. So each meteorite carried small, tiny water molecules that wow. went, when it hit the Earth, eventually, you know, you can't imagine how many meteorites were hitting the Earth at that time. All those tiny water molecules kind of joined up together to create these vast oceans that we see on our Earth today. Huh. And where was the water coming from then? Because that's even more interesting in a way, isn't it? Well, I mean, that's a really cosmic question, to be honest, because these meteorites were coming from outer space. You know, they were they were the remnants of the formation of the solar system. So locked in deep inside these meteorites, they may, you know, who knows where those water molecules came from. But it was, you know, you can trace it all the way back to the formation of, yeah. of the universe. Right. It's fascinating because, of course, one of the things that we go, we go looking for now is any sign of life in any other place. Like in Mars, they found what they thought was water or the or the sort of the, the wherewithal for water to have existed, maybe in ice form or something like that. But it was quite, uh, it's quite unusual to find water anywhere outside of the Earth. Well, it, well, it is. It's, it's one of those kind of key elements that's needed for life anywhere. What's really fascinating is if you look at the surface of all sorts of other different planets, particularly Mars, you can see uh, it's called the geomorphology, the topography. And this is the, the kind of the, the features in the landscape. Mm. We can see where water used to be. We can see river channels and, and you know, aspects where water frozen as ice would have travelled across the land surface. So it's really remarkable that, you know, hundreds of millions of miles away, we can see the impacts of water on the landscape. Mm. And also it's a fun game, isn't it, to play when you're sort of going to somewhere like Norfolk to go, well, this is just like Holland, isn't it? Because it used to be the same place. <laughs> that's right. And I mean, coming back to Pangaea, that's part of the story. That's the beauty of our Earth is over four and a half billion years. The continents have shifted and changed. And so, you know, where we think about Africa, the continent of Africa and the continent of South America, you know, once upon a time, they were both joined yeah. up and the rocks, the, the clues are in the rocks. And what would it have been like when that was all happening? Because, as you say, there was a lot of sort of magma going on. There was water, presumably there was steam, volcanic activity, seismic plates jumping against each other. I mean, if you were standing, say, for example, on the Norfolk coast, as it is now, as it was separating from the main body of Europe, was that happening really slowly? Was, was there a big crack at some point? I mean, I know that's a slightly kind of um, simplistic question, but what, what was it like? I'm going to paint a picture for you now. So almost 335 million years ago, Pangaea was this supercontinent that dominated the Earth's surface. Now, for the British Isles at that time, we were far closer to the equator. But our piece of land was in the rain shadow mm. of a large range of mountains that stretched across the supercontinent. So at that time, 250 million years ago, we were right in the middle of the Triassic period. And that environment was a desert. You know, if you can imagine being in Namibia today, mm. you know, Norfolk, Norfolk would have been a dry, arid desert covered in sand dunes with all sorts of primitive reptiles and, you know, strange kind of amphibian like creatures. Mm. And, and that's what it would have been like because we were not, that, to not that different to the way it is now, really. <laughs> well, you know, there are a few dinosaurs around, aren't there? <laughs> yeah. But listen, I mean, it is, I mean, it is, and is it still happening? I mean, is it sort of because it's a period of time that obviously was was going on for a long time, and we know that the, the, the tectonic plates do move around a little bit. But I mean, is 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 are the continents still on the move, as it were? 
They are. And, you know, there was that, that thing in the news, wasn't there, about that tiny little earthquake registered by the British yes. Geological Survey. I mean, what better evidence do we need to tell us that those plates are still shifting around? Mm. And actually, I mean, the best example I can give you is that the plate, the, the Indian plate, which is moving northwards, is kind of crashing into the Asian plate. And the Himalayas are literally rising because of wow. that collision. I think, I think I've they seen, grow. I think yeah, I've seen on. they grow like an inch a year or something, don't they? That's right, about the rate of our fingernails mm. growing. And, and that's happening right now. And, you know, we hear of volcanoes erupting. We hear of earthquakes. This is all a kind of a, a kind of a, a vision into how the Earth is still actively evolving. Yes. And so it is really a living planet. And that's no, you know, no mistake at all. Not at I mean, what I love about geology is that the clues are in the rocks from the past and they give us an indication of how climate has changed over billions of years. And we use all of that kind of, all of that evidence, those clues to help us to understand how Earth will respond in the future. Right. Fascinating stuff. And so, I mean, when was it first discovered, this whole Pangaea idea, the idea that Earth had become something else from what it had been before? We have to go back, you know, hundreds of years ago to when geologists really started to understand um, and look at clues in the rocks. Mm. And I think it was probably about in the 1950s that the theories of continental drift and plate tectonics started to emerge. And this was Alfred Wegener who uh, proposed that theory. So it was around about that time um, that people really started to think that, you know, the Earth was made up of different crustal plates and that actually, you know, what we can see today, which is so obvious, is that those continents were once joined up. Yeah. And as far as the water movement of, of, the, of the sea, um, it hasn't changed an awful lot, has it? Since, since this, the, the kind of the breakup, it's still, you know, you don't find, I mean, you occasionally find that some island has disappeared or some island has kind of reappeared, but you don't find, for example, say that the water uh, that now laps around to say the, the, the southeast coast of Britain is in some way going to retrieve a retreat in any way. Now, that's actually more related to a more recent climate change. So this would be right. the Ice Age, which was about five million years ago. Right. When we were in the grip of an Ice Age, a lot of that water that we see in our oceans today were locked away in huge mammoth ice caps that covered much of the continent. Mm. So, you know, in terms of where we are now in terms of sea levels, that's more related to how the climate is changing rather than how the Earth is functioning, you know, in terms of its plate and tectonic activity. Yeah. Well, listen, it's a fascinating tale. And it's, I mean, you can never learn enough about your own sort of planet, really, can you? I mean, has it been the case that it's happened anywhere else? In, in, in it? Or is that a bad question to ask you because you're an Earth scientist, not necessarily a scientist for other planets? But I mean, has it happened anywhere else? Do you know what? We need to send out more probes out into space to examine <laughs> the surface of other planets. But, you know, I mean, you know, the part... part perseverance is off to mars you know it's going to land in february and it's going to bring back amazing images and samples of rocks that will help us answer those questions fantastic well you've been a delight thank you very much dr angela katwa uh, there she's an earth scientist she's a tv presenter as well uh, all about pa all you need to know about pangaea isn't that fascinating that the earth used to be just one big continent now it's seven obviously and maybe one day it'll be 17 you never know do you and if you've ever been to norfolk it is very like holland i'm not joking the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio it's Friday, September the 11th, and it's time for this. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Perrier Awards. Uh, it's two-handed now, very good. Glad to see the improvements from last week. It is, of course, um, time for the Perrier Awards. Marta Malagon is here. Hello. Very good afternoon. Slightly later than usual. Yes, but, well, we've um, packed old show today. Goodness gracious me, what a show and Stressful. how good it's been. It's been very good. It's yes. been a great week, actually. Yeah. No, thank I'm, you I'm to all the new, uh, new listeners and Yes, thank viewers. you. And uh, to all the new listeners slash viewers mm. and the regular ones as well. Exactly. Good afternoon thank and you. welcome to the Perry Awards. Thank you very much. This is where we look back over the past week of the so-called Independent so -called. Republic of yes. My Grandma on Talk Radio and choose our favourite moments. Mm. As it's tradition, Mike, the first pair goes to you thank and you. I'm going to go straight straight into it Go is on. the classic Megan impression of the week. Harry, Harry, hey. Harry, do you have to pay them that money back? 2.4 million pounds. Think of how many bathrooms we could buy for that. 
2.4 million pounds. Don't give it to them, Harry. Give it to me. Give it to me. <laughs> Bless her. I can imagine you're asking for that money. Oh, definitely. A hundred percent. You can ditch us off Netflix. Doesn't last long in that house. No, definitely not. Two million it's goes It's an expensive like, house, isn't it? It really is. Um, yeah. Call out Martin in Farnborough. Mm. I decided to join in, join in with his own impression. I love the world and I'm going to teach you how to live well from my multi-million pound house. Um. It's true, yeah. Be kind, be kind. Very good, it's not bad. No, it's not too bad, it's not too bad. I reckon at the end of the year we should host like a competition of the best Megan impressions of our our listeners. Why not? I reckon it'll go down well. Uh, This week's uh, James Larbin Technical Incompetence Perry Award goes to caller Lynn in Southampton. Let's go to the phones to talk to Lynn, who's in Southampton, I think, at a hospital. Hello, Lynn. Hello, Lynn. Are you there? Lynn's not there. Let's try Jonathan. <laughs> she Where was there. she? We have absolutely no idea. We never heard from her again. No, we did. Her, did we? We, yeah, we got her back in the end. Oh, yes. It's just that at that time, we don't know what happened. Mm. Sometimes you put the fader up and, and the lunch is dead. It's possible. Um, um, anyway, this week we're so blessed that uh, we're also going to award the Chris Time Technical mm. Incompetence Perry Award. Very good. And it goes to our regular contributor, Neil Oliver. He's far more partisan, in a way, politically, than the media in England is. Silence. In terms of, you know, uh, what they write about you- have you lost so, me? <laughs> I've lost you at the moment, mate. Oh, okay. Um, so Neil can't hear me at the moment. We'll come back to him. Okay. Well, that was weird because we could still see him. Yes. And the screen was still live. Yes. It wasn't as if the line got cut. No. Strange. I think it was like his audio system. Maybe. Boycott, I call. Yes. Um, we'll be investigating that. So it's many been... things can go wrong now. Exactly. With, with... So many things can be, can be boycotted this, yes. uh, lately. Difficult. Very Technology. Difficult. Yes. Very difficult. Mm. Um, let's now go to the classic, oops, Mike forgets how to speak <laughs> again. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Loads of... Listen to the double whammy, that one. Double whammy. Yeah. Uh, but to be fair to you, Mike, it's just that some words and names are just very difficult to say. But Peter, listen, great questions. If we ever get Man ha- Matt Hancock, Man Han- Hancock, Matt Hancock on this show, <laughs> whatever his name is. Yeah, it's very difficult it's name easy. to say. Yeah. Not easy, but you know. Well, like, you know, funny, human. you would think that uh, with some of the names that are kind of onomatopoeic, as you might call it, mm. um, Rishi Sunak, you think I would get wrong quite a bit. Yes. But actually, I don't. Yeah. But Matt Hancock, you think would be easy. Yeah, I think it's because you try and say it too fast. Probably. Because your, your mind is ahead of your... Yes, my mind works very words. quickly. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes so. my mouth doesn't keep up. No. <laughs> but it's a source of amusement to all of I'm us. Glad, so I'm I glad thank it keeps you, you happy. Um, call it Susan in Sheffield. Windsor Perry mm. for the confusion of the week. You know, the people of Sheffield escorted Piers Morgan to wherever he was going and then the police intervened <laughs> and tried and arrested him. But I oh, I didn't know he was there. Was Piers Morgan there? He was arrested and kept in jail overnight. Oh, you mean Piers Corbyn? Sorry, sorry. I suddenly yeah. thought, hang on a minute. Oh, thank you. What was Piers Morgan doing there? <laughs> Sounds a bit like Piers Corbyn, actually, doesn't it? Yeah. Same kind of syllables, same yeah. sort of sound. Yeah. Piers Morgan, Piers Corbyn. It's an easy mistake to make. Although Piers tweeted out the other day that Piers Corbyn was a bad, uh, was doing bad things for the Piers brand. Oh. Which I thought was quite funny. <laughs> Do you think he can sue him for that? Maybe. There's a, such a make thing as a Piers Make him change his brand. name. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that'd be really funny. Please do that. We need entertainment. <laughs> and you, Mike, uh, you win another parry for the right. Freudian sleep of the week. Thank you. And taking bits of it out just because a couple of, as you say, 50 shades of, uh, uh, not 50 shades, it's no. a six degrees of separation. Six degrees. Yeah, uh, that's not what I'm saying. Chakrabarti. <laughs> What were you thinking? I don't know, Fifty Shades of Shari Chakrabarti doesn't no, bear no, thinking about. No, no one wants to see that. No. Um, it's a family show. So Thank you. No. Earlier in the I week... I don't know what you're talking about. I have no idea either. Uh, earlier in the week, we spoke to uh, Dr Simon Clark. Yes. Uh, we happened to learn that he lives in Reading. Mm. And Mike delivered the harsh comment of the week. Well, you live in Reading, which is about as dead as can be, right? I mean, you might as well live in a cemetery for heaven's sake. You know, you're just going to get out, you're get out a bit more, Simon. Well, I mean, I have been to Reading and it's not very yeah. exciting. I've only been to a train station. Yeah, but don't, I, I wouldn't go any further. <laughs> I've only changed trains there. Yeah. So I, I have for. no idea. Yeah, it makes Slough look exciting. I've never been to Slough either. That's where they set the, the office. roundabout is. Well, it's isn't where it? they set the office. Yeah, yeah. As well. That's, that's all I know. Right. I need to get out what, more the, as well. What, the roundabout they shut down? The cyclist roundabout? Oh, is that the one? Is that the one you mean? No, no, no. I mean the office roundabout. Oh. You know the office, the opening credits yeah, of the yeah. office. There's that's a roundabout. Right. Slough, yes. So that's what I think. That's where it's from, yeah. Very oh, well, uh, on Glad Tuesday, we that out. <laughs> on Tuesday, 
we had breaking news mm. uh, during the show in the form of a 3.3 magnitude earthquake. Yes. Mike, you win the reaction of the week. Earthquake in Bedfordshire. Uh, whoop, whoop. <laughs> <laughs> that is, of course, the world-renowned earthquake international alarm. Sound. Yes. Whoop, 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 whoop. Yeah. We should, uh, yeah, we'll clip that and we'll play that. Thank you. And finally. And finally. Mike, uh, you're a Fleet Street legend. legend what am I? Even. Fleet Street, Street legend. legend. Thank you. Please let let's know what they do. Uh, News Hound Mike, some people call you in yes. this office yes. and everyone else. If there's a story, you're on it. Mm. You get the facts. You're the master of asking the right questions. Thank you. Uh, when it comes to interviews, congratulations! You win a perrier for the investigative journalism question of the week. And do you have a favourite dinosaur, Mark? Because obviously you <laughs> study these things all the time. Uh, do you do you have one that you particularly like? That's a good question. It is a good question. And he had one too, by the way. He had one. Yes. So, you know. But, you know, sometimes it's not about, you know, breaking the law in a limited and specific way. No, not always. It's not about coronavirus cases. It's about what's your favourite dinosaur. As we say on this show, the news is what I tell you it is. Yes. That's the news. That's the news. And that was the Perry Awards. And that was the Perry Awards. Um, There'll be more next week. Marvellous. Well done. The Perry Awards on Talk Radio. Radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.